KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno at 88.1 FM, and all the time at kpfa.org. Time now for Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up in darkness from the ones who walk in light light them up boys there's your picture drop the shadows out of sight this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throne. Today I'm going to tell you all about a book. Uh, it's the sort of book that pleads for our survival, for uh, our maintenance, for the Earth's survival. And uh, I think I think I should just quickly go over what you can get from us first. <laughs> and then we'll tell you about it because some people like to call during the show and some people after. Uh, we are in a fundraising marathon, as you know. And today I have Jane Goodall's new book, Seeds of Hope. This one's all about the, the plants, you know, the sacred plants. Is it 140 million years before the dinosaurs, I've got here a fossil record of trees. You got it? <laughs> anyway, I was kind of uh, shocked when I saw she was writing about plants. I kind of figured, you know, she'd done enough with the chimps and things. But uh, anyway, this book is an awesome study of Earth's basic life forms. As she says, without photosynthesis, there wouldn't be any us. Anyway, uh I think the basic life forms, the green stuff, uh, as I get older, I notice that this stuff uh, is right in the front of my consciousness when I was younger. I didn't pay any attention. I just thought, you know, ocean was there to swim in and uh, trees were there to climb. Uh, it's a wonderful picture in this book of Julia Butterfly Hill climbing in a tree, but I... Uh, I think I made a list of all the women writers I know that spent their last decade talking about the earth. Uh, George Sand's biography, she, somebody translated her last words as keep off the grass. That isn't what she was talking about. She was talking about preserving the land, the place where she lived. But anyway, Jane Goodall's book, Wisdom and Wonder from the World of Plants, is written with Gail Hudson. And in the foreword, there's a line here that I think this is the best synthesis. Uh, aha. She says, or he says, pardon me, Michael Pollan, P-O-L-L-A-N. He says, more than any other scientist or writer I can think of, Jane Goodall expanded the circle of human empathy to take in the emotional lives of other creatures. He goes on to talk about 
this question of whether or not uh, plants have emotions, whether they think or communicate, uh, if they feel. Of course, we know they do. I remember when I was, uh, what is that, um, a suburban housewife, I guess I was, watching old television shows by Norman Lear. There was one called Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. It was about a woman going crazy because she was uh, living an artificial life in her suburban home. And she started to talk to plants. And this, of course, was uh, an excuse to put her in the bunkhouse. I think, yes, but at the time I thought, yeah, I think she's got something there. I talked to my plants. I have some terrific hibiscus. Uh, and I have several, see, I have nasturtiums. Never mind, it's a long list, but my back balcony is exploding with flowers. I never thought that sort of thing would interest me. Anyway, uh, in the foreword, uh, Michael Pollan goes on to say that... Uh, the mastery, plant's mastery of the astonishing trick of eating sunlight and turning it into food is a skill that's hard for us to identify with, but you've got to admit, it puts something like the opposable thumb or even trigonometry right in its place. <laughs> anyway, plants may not themselves possess consciousness, at least as we understand it, but they do know how to manipulate the consciousness of other supposedly higher creatures. He goes on to talk about the chemical compounds that plants manufacture and how if you think about it long enough, it may be that they are controlling us. Uh, she says, when we meet the plants in this book, they're masters of metaphor and simulation. Carrion plants. Mimic, there's one here, mimics the stench of rotten meat and lures insects. Orchids adorn themselves so as to resemble the hindquarters of female bees. Why? To trick credulous male bees into performing acts of pseudo-copulation unbeknownst to them. These are actually acts of pollination. Anyway, there's a lot of sex in this book. It's hilarious. Uh, I think... I think I should ask Laura Privis, who is in here with me, to tell you about the CDs. I, I was looking here to see, Laura, what do we got for everybody? We have. Well, yes, this is our um, money total. KPFA Spring Fundraising Drive. And Jane Goodall spoke not that long ago, just uh, earlier in April at King Middle School in Berkeley. So we do have that event on CD. For a $75 pledge to KPFA today, or also on DVD for a $100 pledge. So you can get that Jane Goodall speaking in Berkeley, which we are going to play some clips of that coming up. And also then there is the book, which is it's kind of, I mean, it is about plants, but it's also about Jane. So it's kind of a <laughs> memoir. Yeah. Uh, Seeds of Hope, Wisdom and Wonder from the World of Plants. And that's for... You can get that for a $150 donation to KPFA right now. The number to call is 510-848-5732 or 1-800-439-5732. Okay, guys, I, I'm still not sure about the money, dear. I, explain it to me. Uh, $75 gets you what? 
gets you the the CD the a CD of the lecture that Jane Goodall gave in Berkeley. Just a lecture. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's an audio CD. Right. For $100, what do you get? You get a uh, DVD. It's a video of video. Jane Goodall speaking okay. and the event. That's the video at the event. Okay. Now, for $150, what do you get? You get this nice brand new hardback covered book, Seeds of Hope, by Jane Goodall. Okay. And just the book? Just the book. Okay. And then CD plus the book, that's $200. Okay, and then CD, VD. That's a, that's a typo. Just DVD plus say, the book. Pardon me, there's a too <laughs> a many letters. extra C in there. Okay, so the biggest amount here is 225 for which you get the video plus the book. Got it? Okay, $225. Now, that would be the the uh, luxury gift you can give it to your favorite friend um, possibly a school teacher uh, I thought this would be a wonderful uh, book to start a course in uh, what would we call it uh, not just ecology I like to call it I like to call them e eco warriors not egos get rid of your ego and become an eco warrior <laughs> anyway this book is Basically, not just a how-to book, but it's kind of a, it, it inspires, you know. I think Jane Goodall, uh, what is it? She's She's been called a secular saint, but for me, uh, what I love so much about her, <laughs> yes, I identify, she was never an academic. Uh, she got all of the, uh, uh, she got all of the academic credentials later. But she just did what she wanted to do. She just, you know, went to Lewis Leakey and said, I want to do the, the chimps in Gombe. And, and, uh, she just went ahead and did it. And somehow she got a, uh, enough money or a little grant and she started off and she was so successful that they just let her go ahead. And what I like about that is that she just followed her passion and the rest came along. Now, you know, uh, it always seems a little, uh, romantic or idealistic to say follow your heart but in her case it worked uh, I think yeah the first time I saw her her uh, the films of her with those chimps I, I didn't believe it I could not imagine anybody could be that familiar with critters uh, I raised I raised one monkey myself and and she was nuts uh, anyway I think uh, let's see uh, I think that Jane's, what is the word for that? Jane's devotion, devotion to the earth uh, couldn't help but expand. She understands that everything is connected threads. She goes back here when trees began. She says trees appeared about 370 million years ago, uh, about 100 million years after the first plants. I. Uh, Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. 370 million years ago. Anyway, my favorite number or statistic here is an ancient, ancient fossil. It's, uh, let's see, the fossil record says that, get this, 385 million years ago, they found uh a fossil that was the crown of a fern-like tree. 
oh my god, 385 million years ago. Uh, and actually, this page goes on here to explain all of the little bits and pieces they found later, but the number I got was the 385 million. Obviously, they were here first. Uh, I think, I think that this fern-like tree, there's a picture of it, uh, the one that appeared 140 million years before the first dinosaurs. I think this is what I would call an icon, a religious object, uh, sacred. Uh, it's on a sacred stone here. Anyway, it made everything possible. It made us possible. Uh, let's see, tree-like plants, plants spreading across the land, sending roots down into the ground. Uh, why don't we, or why don't we, before we talk more about the, uh, the history, the ancient history, uh, one more living ancient got this. Get this. This is, uh, not millions. It's just thousands, but there is a living tree, living ancient that is 4,843 years old. There are a couple of, uh, descriptions here of, uh, ancient trees. One was 6,000 years old and, uh, Somebody cut it down. <laughs> you know, I, I think that should be, I think that's, uh, what is that? That's murder. The oak trees are my special favorites. Uh, you know, the ones in deer parks. I think of King John under the oak with the Magna Carta back in the 13th century. Uh, the pictures here, I think, I'm thinking I would like to see line drawings of these ancient gnarled trees they look like they look like the drawings of Arthur Rackham that uh, Victorian illustrator you know the one who draws the trees looking like they're clawing their way uh, up and out uh, you know reaching for the light reaching up uh, becoming enlightened okay Laura have we got a a piece, a bit. A s yeah. Why don't we? Why don't we um, listen to listen to, Jane. to a little of the audio from the the speech with Jane Goodall. This actually, this is a clip from the beginning of the speech, and she begins uh, by speaking in chimpanzee. Well, first of all, that was good evening in chimpanzee. And it actually meant, I'm Jane, and who's out there? So, uh, hello to everyone. I want, you know, so many people have said to me, why on earth have you written a book about plants? You know, we know you for studying chimpanzees. A lot of people have read the last book, Hope for Animals and Their World. Why plants? The reason actually is very simple. When I was working with Gail on that last book, Hope for Animals and Their World, it was about rescuing animals on the very brink of extinction. And of course, many plants are on the brink of extinction too. And so we had a long section on rescuing plants. Well, the book got longer and longer. More and more stories uh, appeared about plants and animals. And in the end, the publisher said, look, sorry, we cannot have a section on plants. 
And so I, I was feeling a bit sad because we had cooperation from so many wonderful botanists. And I felt I'd let them down. And they were all excited. They wanted to be in a, you know, a Jane Goodall book. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I said to Gail, well, maybe we can just put together what we did about plants and make a little slim book and maybe... Maybe some botanical garden would like to publish it, you know, so that we, we just sort of pay our respects to the botanist. And so that was sort of what we decided to do. But, you know, it was honestly as though the plants put little roots into my brain and said, look, Jane, you've been spending all your life helping animals. Now it's our turn. And so the book changed from this very simple idea of plants rescued from the brink of extinction and the amazing botanists and others who have prevented that from happening. And although there is information about that in various parts of the book, it went far, far broader than that. And to start off with, you know, when I was a little girl growing up in England, my mother, sister and I went to live with with her mother at the beginning of war. We had very little money, but attached to this house was a big garden with trees. And I loved climbing the trees. And I had one tree that I loved so much that I wrote out a little will and testament and got my grandmother to sign it, leaving this beech tree to me in her will after her death. <laughs> well, I guess I'm lucky because that beech tree is still in the garden and the house belongs now to me and my sister and she actually lives in it, you know, keeps the home fires burning with her family and um, beech tree is still there, bigger now, I couldn't climb beech now, he, he's grown up there but anyway, still there and while I was growing up at this time, I, I, we, we, the house is sort of fairly near the sea and to get to the sea, you go along the road, and then you go down what, what are called chines. And chine turns out to be an archaic French word for dried riverbed. So these dried, dried, dried riverbeds go down to the sea, and they were thickly forested with pine trees and some oak and all those sort of things. And that along the top of the cliff, there were more trees. Well, I've since discovered that it used to be moorland and all these trees were actually introduced when they wanted to make the town of Bournemouth into a watering spa and attract people with pretty trees. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. The thing is that, that during my childhood, me and my dog Rusty would go off and wander on the cliffs and be part of nature. And sometimes I would go out into other parts of the country, into the moorland where there was heather. And... In this garden, I wanted to grow things. I think all children, if they have the opportunity, like to grow things. But unfortunately, because there were all these rhododendrons, which also were, were introduced, I didn't know that, but they were, and they make the soil very acidic, and the pine trees don't help either. So our attempts to grow food, especially during the war, when we thought, ah, oh, we'll feed ourselves, it'll be easier. But, <laughs> well... Uh, if you imagine a turnip, which is about that big, uh, our turnips were about that big. <laughs> that was as big as they'd grow. 
And, of course, we weren't using any chem nasty chemicals back then. They hadn't been invented. And so um, whatever did grow was usually infested by various kinds of beetle larvae, caterpillars, and, of course, slugs and snails, many, many slugs and snails. I always loved plants. And when I was about 12 years old, I used to bring some flowers home and make detailed drawings of them and paint them. We've actually got a couple of those in the book. And when I look back on it, I'm, I'm sort of amazed because they weren't, this wasn't schoolwork. It was something that I just liked to do. So that was my early experience with, uh, with, the, with the plants. And then, as of course I wanted to go to Africa and live with animals and had fallen in love with Tarzan when I was 10 years old. And, and, you know, well, obviously this romantic lord of the jungle for a little girl loving animals. And what did Tarzan do? He married the wrong Jane. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So anyway, uh, eventually there was no money for university, but... Um, my mother said, do a secretarial course and you can perhaps get a job in Africa. And that's what happened. And that was when I met the late Louis Leakey, who spent his life searching for the fossilized remains of, of um, early humans. And he offered me this amazing chance of going and observing not just any animal, but the one closest to us. And for the first I guess a year or year, even two years, I was so absolutely concentrated on learning about chimpanzees, on not letting Louis Leakey down, on trying to get them used to me, on learning the different personalities, describing their behavior, being sent by Louis Leakey to Cambridge University, where he said I had to get a PhD and there was no time for a BA, and going through all of that. <laughs> and so... It wasn't really until after that that I really and truly could marvel in the wonders of the forest world where the chimpanzees lived. And then gradually I was getting to understand the different trees. They almost seemed to have personalities. And I would put my hand on a young sapling and feel, you know, here's a young life. And I'd sort of imagine the sap rising and then there'd be an old hoary fig tree, strangling fig, that had probably been there uh, well over 500 years. And so these trees with their personalities became part of it all. And when you're out in the forest, particularly the tropical forest, you cannot help but sense and then understand the interconnectedness of all life in the forest. The death of an old tree, how the, the new life springs up, the seeds that stay dormant in the ground until the canopy opens up and lets in the sun when one of the big trees dies and then these trees sprout up. And, of course, the chimpanzees spending all their time in trees and I often used to climb up into the trees just as I had as a child uh, to examine their nests and so forth and get a bit of a feeling of the life on a higher level and actually wondered why we ever left the trees as a species because it's so much cooler, the insects are mostly left behind as the wind blows. So just feeling very much a part of this forest world. And so when Gail and I were talking about this book on plants, all of this became very part 
of the idea of the book, to weave in the personal stories, to try and help people understand something of the magic of plants. And the first thing to be excited about and to marvel at is the sheer diversity of the different species of plants, the amazing way they've adapted to just about any environment on the face of the planet. And some, like orchids, there's only one part of the world where they don't thrive, and that's Antarctica, I suppose the Arctic as well. And just the variety of forms and shapes of the orchids and the way that they, they pr pretend to be a female bee, to lure a male bee to come and mate with them. And in doing so, he will collect pollen, which is their whole aim, is to have the pollen taken away to another orchid where it can hopefully uh, pollinate an ovum. And so the pollen gets distributed and the orchids get fertilized. And although most of them actually don't grow from seeds, it's difficult to grow many plants from seeds, but still, they have this immense variety of ways of, of attracting different kinds of pollinators. And then the, um, Gail, how do you say that, that witchy plant, the thing that has two leaves that grow forever? <laughs> it's a strange plant growing Listichia in Botswana. Or something, Listichia or something like that. Which, yeah. yeah. Anyway, it was a plant that absolutely, totally fascinated many of the early botanists. What? Well, Wichia. Well, well, that's right. Thank you. Got some botanists out there. Anyway, she has a copy of the book. Well, Wichia, <laughs> yes. So this plant, it starts off with two little leaves. Um, very small, they don't last long, and then these other two come. And so it's, it's, it's as though these two leaves continue to grow from the same parent, and they grow for more than a thousand years, just these same two leaves, never anymore. But if you look at them, it's a sort of tangle of growing and dead leaves that spreads out around the plant. It's quite extraordinary. So there are amazing uh, plants like that. And... Uh, to me, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And the one thing that I want to say about this book was it was a journey of adventure. It took me into worlds that I really hadn't ventured into before. I was continually learning new things, learning about those incredible 17th, 18th century plant hunters who risked their lives, and in fact, quite a few of them actually died going off into the wild places and collecting plants, finding out how on earth they could get them back to England, and often it was through seeds. And they were crazy. These plant hunters were crazy. And some of them were just pure botanists. They really were curious about the botanical wonders of that, the world at that time. Others were working, they might have been botanists, but they were working for uh, those who wanted to exploit the plants. They wanted to sell them, they wanted to make money, and they did make money. And there were extraordinary crazes, like the tulip craze. So that in, in Holland back then, people would pay hundreds and hundreds of pounds for a tulip bulb, for a rare tulip bulb. And there's this lovely story of this one incredibly rare bulb, and the collector had been waiting and waiting and waiting to get hold of this, and it came, came over with a man who was delivering silk from the Orient or from wherever it was, and uh, he, he left it, and 
well, when he was waiting to be paid, there was an onion there on top of the silk, and he ate it. And so that was the end of the, of the rare pot. And little, plot, little stories like this are such fun, and it brings this, this old time to life. And there are many stories like that, which I think you'll be amused at, just as I was. That's Jane Goodall, when she was here in Berkeley, um, talking about her new book. Her new book is called Seeds of Hope. And I think uh, Jane's experience with plants is magical, uh, spiritual, I don't know whether I like that word anymore, but uh, you see that from Sherwood Forest to the Amazon Basin, she's pretty much covered it. Uh, it is a late age now. Uh, the botanists uh, the botanists gave us a lot of facts, but we need a bigger, uh, all-encompassing theory. We call it the, somebody calls it the Gaia theory, G-A-I-A. You know, the idea that the, the planet itself is one great entity, you know, in which uh, all of us are just little cells. I, I just, I like to think of Jane Goodall out on the moors with uh, Emily Bronte. <laughs> That's it. Emily Bronte out there on the moors with her dog, Keeper. I'm going to make a picture of that. Anyway, this book has got all kind of good things in it. Let me read you just uh, one little snippet here. Uh, she likes to quote the poets and the other, uh, what do you call that, uh, the other naturalists. That's what I think they are. She loves Thomas Hardy. He wrote a book called Under the Greenwood Tree. And in 1872, uh, he writes, To dwellers in a wood, almost every species...